Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, We thank you for the worship that we have been a part of together in this moment. For the songs that we've been singing for the table of grace that we've gathered around. God, we pray that as we now open your word and focus our hearts on what we find there, that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to be changed by what we hear. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So as, as Keith talked about, we are in the, the last week of this What Would Jesus Undo message series. And we've talked about all these forces of, of darkness that Jesus wants to undo in his life and his ministry. This, this morning, we're going to be focusing on one that's, that I think is, is, is pretty challenging, at least it is for me. And that is the power of self-deception. Right? The ability for us to not see ourselves clearly. That Jesus comes to deliver us from that kind of blurry vision when it comes to our own identity, who we are, the kinds of people we are, the kinds of lives that we're living. And it's, it's always easy for me to look at other churches and see the places where they're struggling with self-deception. You know, maybe the, the most extreme case that we could point out is this Westboro congregation from Topeka, Kansas. You've probably heard something about the the Westboro Church. They're the ones, there's only 40 members or so, but they've gone to over 66,000 protests where they go to these funerals and they have these little signs and and they have all of these words that you're not even supposed to say in church really on these signs and they're assuring people you know, that if they're not a part of, of the church, that God hates them, and they, they have signs, they go to, to American soldiers' funerals and say that God wanted those soldiers to die, and they, they thank God for the AIDS epidemic because it's punishing sinful people. And, and if you go on their website, they talk about this, ironically, as their picketing ministry. Uh, this ministry of love and truthfulness about God's hatred for sinners. And I'm telling you, one way or another, they have convinced themselves that somehow these signs are sharing the good news of the gospel. And it is easy for me to look at that and shake my head and think, how in the world could anybody be that confused and misguided? It's not just other churches, it's also other church leaders. This is happening less and less because of the way... TV technology is changing. It used to happen a lot more that I would be bored and and just going through the the different channels and I'd come across a TV preacher. And I always would want to keep going, but I just couldn't. I would would stop right there and see what were they going to say today. And you'd be amazed at the kind of things that you'll hear from TV preachers, especially if you come across one that late at night where you know, they're, they're not exactly sure who's listening and who's paying attention. I remember one preacher saying that he couldn't fly commercial because demons are on commercial flights, but demons don't infiltrate private jets. I'm not making this up. Uh, one said that he was praying for God to give him a Holy Spirit machine gun so he could take out his critics. Another one talked about having this dream and a vision that somehow he was going to plan. This was years ago. He was so disappointed in the direction of 
the, the way the United States was interacting with other nations, that he, he had this vision that he was going to somehow get his hands on a small nuclear device so he could get it into the State Department and blow it up. TV preachers, right? Who needs them? That's what you think when you're watching it. And I think I shake my head and I think, man, I, I'm better at this than, you know. <laughs> I'm better than that. Right? It, it's easy for us to look at, at churches that get into the newspaper or, or, you know, preachers who have their own shows and are constantly saying things that you just can't. How could you possibly think that that has anything with the good news of the, the gospel? But then you start to look at our own tradition, right? The broader churches of Christ. And there's stories that you're going to find about other churches that, that just, they unsettle you. But, and you think, how, how could they think that that was a good idea, right? We, I've heard of churches of Christ splitting over uh, which kind of Bible translation you're allowed to use. I've heard of them splitting over um, not only how many cups you can take use for communion, but when you take communion and how often you take, I mean, they blow up churches over that. I have, I've seen letters where churches disfellowship somebody because they had a meal in the church building. Or disfellowship somebody because they, they visited a different church, a different denomination. I've heard of, of churches where they, they have these conflicts that go on for years and years. I was even at a meeting once where they were trying to decide whether or not the preacher was going to get to stay and a fist fight broke out. You know, it wasn't an impressive one, but it was a fist fight that broke out. <laughs> it, it, is, it is so easy for us to, to look at other churches, right? You could go online and find these ex-Church of Christ members groups where people share stories of things that have happened to them and they no longer go to a Church of Christ because of how, how much they were hurt by something that took place. And I promise you that all of those stories where people had these experiences at church that drove them away from Jesus, the people who drove them away thought they were helping them. Right? It's so easy for me to look out at other churches and church leaders and find the ways that they've lost their way, find the ways that they're deceiving themselves into thinking that somehow what they're doing is, is connected to the heart of the gospel, and yet it's so obvious, looking from the outside in, that, that they've confused themselves. That they're not seeing clearly. But thank goodness we do. Right? Well, Jesus, he's interacting often in his ministry with religious leaders, right? We, we would call them now church leaders. Who are, are trying their best to do what they think matters most. And they can't see that they've lost their way. And Jesus loves them too much to refuse to say anything. He loves them too much to let them continue to be in this, this place, this spiritual valley of self-deception. He needs them to see the truth. He is the truth. And he wants them to be delivered from this spirit of self-deception. So he speaks as directly and as powerfully as he can to them. And we're going to read together how he responds to them in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, 
a Pharisee invited to eat with invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not wash before the meal. The Lord said to him, by the way, he didn't just notice that he said it, right? So Jesus is responding. Now then you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. And then one of the experts in the law, this was the guy in your class who says, Teacher, teacher, you forgot to give us homework. (laughs) Don't ask my family if I ever did that in school. Just trust me. I didn't. I didn't. One of the experts in the law said, teacher, teacher, when you say those things, you're insulting us too. And Jesus replied, okay. And you experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Now this is not the the kind of typical dinner conversation you expect when you invite somebody over. Right? And, and even though the, the Pharisee in this case and Jesus obviously have a significant theological disagreement about ceremonial washing before meals and all the rest of it, Jesus takes this opportunity to say, if, if we're going to talk about what makes someone's life pleasing to God, then let's talk about it. And let's not just focus on my outward behavior that you either accept or you don't. Let's talk about what's going on inside your life, inside your heart, inside your soul. Let's talk about that. Let's let's dig a little bit deeper, deeper. Now, here's the thing that's difficult with this kind of story, right, is that we know if we've ever heard a story before about Jesus and a Pharisee or Jesus and an expert in the law, almost always the Pharisee or the expert in the law, they're the bad guys in the story. And when we listen to a story like that, we immediately start to distance ourselves from the Pharisee or the expert in the law because we can't possibly have anything in common with the bad guy in the story. Other people can be the bad guy in the story, but, but it's hard for me to see myself playing that role. right? It's, it's like the experience, when you read a story like this in Scripture, it's like when you walk up on somebody and you realize that they're getting in trouble for something. right? So sometimes this happens at work, sometimes this happens at home, where there was a confrontation happening and somebody's made a mistake and they're being called on the carpet for it. And it's always weird to overhear that kind of thing happening, right? Because part of you is a little embarrassed that you're walking up on this disagreement happening or this confrontation happening. Part of you is relieved that you're not the one getting in trouble. Um, and, and part of you is a little embarrassed that you're relieved, 
right? And you kind of go through that process. Now, it gets a little trickier if the reason the person is getting confronted is because they've done something that you do, right? I'll never forget a specific time that in middle school I spent the night with a good friend. His name was Brian. Uh, his dad had laid out for us exactly how, how late we could stay up and watch movies because his parents were going to bed. And after we watched the first movie, I decided that, you know, I would pressure Brian to not listen to his parents because I was making poor decisions, right? And so I decided to tell, you know, what? Your dad's asleep. He's never going to know. There's, there's two more movies in this trilogy. We really got to watch them. It's, what they don't know, you know, it's not going to hurt them. And, and you're being a chicken. And, you know, I, I would do it. And, and you know how unimpressive I am. And even I have the courage to do this. You need to do this, Brian. And I, I threw all these lame reasons out. And we kept watching movies, which was fine until 3.45 in the morning when we were still up watching movies and his dad came downstairs to check to see if we had been obedient, which we had not been. And because Brian had invited me over, guess who got yelled at? Brian got yelled at, right? He got pulled into his, his uh, bedroom and I overheard his father talk about what a poor example he was being to the preacher's son. Right. There's a weird experience in that moment where part of you thinks I should go in there and take the blame, but the bigger part of you says, not my house, not my problem. <laughs> right? You, you wrestle when you hear somebody being confronted over something that you yourself do. Now, I'm not saying we're exactly like the Pharisees and the experts in the law in this story. But I do think we need to wrestle with whether or not we sometimes do what Jesus is talking about here in this, this story. What, what Jesus is saying they struggle with doing. See, because if, if we're ever going to be freed from this spirit of self-deception, we're going to have to be brutally honest with ourselves in the presence of God. That's what grace makes possible. Right? If grace is unconditional in the presence of God, and grace is unconditional in the presence of God, then you and I should have the courage to tell the truth about ourselves, to see the truth about ourselves, and to believe that God loves us anyway. I'm convinced that's the beginning of the healing that we desperately need. I want us to start with a a direct question, and that is, what is church for? Right? That, that, that I think, is really going to help us get to the core of what we're, we're wrestling with here. Questions like, what is God's dream for church? Why does God ask us to gather together in community? What kind of values should shape us? What, what kind of difference should we be making in one another's lives and in the lives of everyone we come into contact with? That's, those are a lot of questions. And they're big questions. They, they have big, huge implications for not only who we are, but who we believe God is calling us to be. Years ago, I read an essay by an American author named Wendell Berry, and the name of the essay was, what are people for? And it was a question I had never stopped to ask before. I had never really wrestled with the question of, 
what is the reason for people's existence? Barry's essay suggests that when you look at our world, you might think that the reason for people is for them to produce and consume economic goods. That that's, that's at least the reason our culture has said people exist. That's the best use of their life. But Barry suggests that instead, people, they're created for sharing life together in goodness. And, and everybody uh, pitching in and helping out and trying to do whatever they can to, to use the gifts they have to bless other people in the community. And because underneath all of this, Barry isn't just uh, an essayist and an author, he's also a Christian, he ends up saying that the way he would express it as a Christian is, what are people for? Well, people are created so that they can experience love and help others experience love. That that is the essence of the reason for our existence. With that same open honesty and trying to get to the core of what we believe matters most, I think we've got to wrestle with this question, right? What is church for? I mean, what what is the essence of what we're supposed to be doing when we gather together? Why do we gather together? What are we trying to accomplish in partnership with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit? What, what kind of transformation should we be witnessing in, in one another's lives? And what about the people who aren't here yet? What about the people out in the world? How should they see us? How should they understand us? What kind of reputation should we have in their eyes? I mean, at some point, it seems to me that at least a good number of the Pharisees and the experts in the law, they, they decided that God's people were created to faithfully keep God's rules. That's what people were for. That that was the bottom line. God's people were created to faithfully keep God's rules. Why? Because they believed that faithfully keeping God's rules was the best way of keeping God happy. Faithfully keeping God's rules was the best way of, of keeping God's blessing pouring into your life. And so it seems that at least, again, for a good number of people within these faith communities, they boiled down their religious experience to this group exercise of keeping God's rules together and hoping that in in keeping God's rules together, they were going to keep themselves in God's good graces. Now, Now, don't get me wrong. Keeping God's rules, following God's law, was and is important. There's no question about it, but rules were never supposed to be an end in themselves, right? God's rules were always supposed to be a starting place, a set of of moral training wheels, a, a group of foundational practices that would help these people grow more and more into people of joyous generosity and deep empathy and active compassion for their neighbors, God's rules were supposed to get them there. God's rules were not how they proved that they were already there. God wanted them to to have this guideline, these these words and these ideas that he gives to them in the law that 
supposed to help them go down this road of becoming more and more people who place their sense of self-worth in God and God alone and not in their own sense of, of personal success or fame or influence. People who did everything in their power when they had power to help bless the lives of other people, to make those, those people have lives that were deeper and richer and fuller. God's rules were supposed to kickstart this process of, of this transformation, of them turning into people who valued relationships more than anything else. And when I say they were supposed to value relationships more than anything else, I don't mean just any kind of relationship. I mean loving, self-giving relationships that they could nurture between themselves and God, between themselves and their neighbors. God didn't want them to settle for being obsessive rule keepers who turned other people into obsessive rule keepers who then turned to all the other people who weren't already obsessive rule keepers and told them all the ways that they were wrong. That's too small and petty to call God's mission. So Jesus calls them back. He, he tries to help them see their own self-deception. He tries to point out how they've, they've gone wrong, how they've lost their way along the way. Jesus tries to show them how they have accidentally found ways to keep God's law and yet break God's heart at the same time. They care more about themselves and their standing before God than their relationship with God or their relationship with other people. And so Jesus says, this focus, it has to shift back to what matters most. Right? What, what really matters? Well, Jesus lays it out, and it's pretty straightforward and simple. What really matters? Well, giving to those in need, verse 41. Loving God by actively loving the people who, who need God's love the most, verse 42. Finding their self-worth in serving God instead of by impressing others, verse, verse 43. And finally in verse 46, working to make life better for those struggling with life as it is. This is what Jesus would say the church is for. Giving to those in need, loving God by actively loving the people in this world who need God's love the most. And those are the people who haven't yet experienced God's love. Finding self-worth, us finding our own self-worth. Not in achievements or, or fleeting success, but in serving God instead of impressing others. And working to make life measurably, tangibly better for those people who are currently struggling with life as it is. This is what our faith is for. And the Pharisee that Jesus is talking to, and the Pharisees gathered in that house, and the, the experts in the law who are there, they don't know this anymore. They don't see this as what really matters anymore. But Jesus loves them too much to let them continue down this path of somehow finding a way to technically keep God's rules and yet break God's heart. I think it's easy for us, it will always be easy for us, to look at other churches and other church leaders and, and find the ways that they have lost their way. All the, the places that they've gone wrong, the Westboro Church and the TV preachers and, and other congregations we hear about, all of them together, we just group them in, in this 
this column that we would say, oh, they're just all Pharisees and, and experts in law, and we're not anything like them. This sermon isn't to us or about us. It's, it's to them. It's about them. But the thing is, what's been really bothering me this entire week about this sermon in Luke chapter 11 is, if it were the case, right, if it was true, would we be able to clearly see that while we may be really good at this whole religion thing, we're, we're not really seen as the good people we think we are? How, how would we see that if it were true? I mean, what about our blind spots here at Southern Hills? I mean, we have them. But how, how would we know? How could we see? that They're called blind spots for a reason. And the question is, do we believe that Jesus Christ can deliver us from the spirit of self-deception? And will we open our hearts up to the possibility that we just might be wrong about a few things? We, we might even be wrong about some major things when it comes to putting relationships, our, our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. If, if that's not beating at the heart of what we're doing... We're fooling ourselves. And I think we've we got to go back to this question that, that I asked earlier, right? What do we really believe our church is all about? What do we believe church is for? We, we don't come here to learn how to follow God's rules so we can win some award for being really good at following God's rules, right? No, because only Pharisees and, and experts in the law would do that. So that can't be why we're coming. And we can't possibly be coming to church in order to justify what we already believe and how we already think and how we already live. Right? Only the Pharisees and the experts in the law would do that. We would never do that. We, we can't possibly be coming to church in order to be catered to and, and have our personal preferences met, the things that we like. Right? That, that, that's, that's not what we're coming here for. We can't possibly be doing that. We have to go down these, these kinds of, of lines of thinking, right? These, these logic lines where we have to get really honest about the ways that we're like people in the story that we don't want to be anything like. We've said this a bunch of different ways in the past couple of years, right? That the Southern Hills Church of Christ exists to be a community of everyday disciples. You've already heard that language multiple times this morning. Everyday disciples who bless and heal our broken world through God's love because of God's love. Right? You, you know that at least in terms of how we would talk or how we would want to describe our, our core vision as a church, it would sound something like this. And as I see it, as I read it, as I think about it, I say, you know, that's, that's a really good vision. That, that really is something close to how I would want to try to describe God's mission in the world. But here's the thing. We can put this stuff on websites and on bulletins and on t-shirts and everywhere else and convince ourselves that we're actually being this kind of community. 
And yet all the while, we can be valuing things. We can be putting things at the center that don't belong at the center. Anytime we slip into thinking that our church is here primarily to keep us feeling settled and comfortable, we are deceiving ourselves about what matters most. Anytime we assume that we already know God and God's will and God's heart well enough, we are deceiving ourselves about what matters most. Anytime we think that our faith primarily consists of believing ideas about God rather than doing the hard things God calls us to do, we are deceiving ourselves about what matters most. Anytime we settle for a world where the poor suffer while the wealthy ignore that suffering, we are deceiving ourselves about what matters most. Anytime we think we can love God without self-sacrificially loving our neighbors, we are deceiving ourselves about what matters most. Anytime we act out of an insecurity or a need to prove ourselves instead of trusting that we are worth what God says we are worth. And you're worth the life of God's own son. Anytime we forget that and we start to move out of insecurity to prove ourselves, we are deceiving ourselves about what matters most. Anytime we use our religious standards to make someone else's life harder, to make someone who's struggling feel even more guilt-ridden, more shame-driven, we are deceiving ourselves about what matters most. Anytime people assume that Jesus couldn't possibly like them because the church doesn't like them, we are deceiving ourselves about what matters most. Look, the bottom line here is that Jesus calls us to pursue loving relationships more than he ever calls us to keep religious rules. And if the religion we're practicing isn't building a better relationship between us and God, between us and our neighbors, then it is false religion. And we're deceiving ourselves about what matters most. Look, when I was looking at breaking down the Gospel of Luke and which text I was going to preach on, I realized that never in my life had I chosen to preach over the woes that Jesus gives to the Pharisees and the experts in the law because they're uncomfortable. I mean, if you're having to make choices, you skip the woes. <laughs> Unless you're me. We have to have the courage, because of God's grace, to see and tell the truth about ourselves and to believe that God loves us anyway. And God doesn't want us to stay in this place where we're fooling ourselves about who we really are and about what matters most. And so this morning, I want us to be a confessing church. I want us to have the courage to see the places where we are too focused on ourselves and what we want and what we like and we're not willing to sacrifice nearly enough to reach all the people in our community who don't yet know how much Jesus loves them and cares for them because we haven't shown them yet. That's what matters most. It's what's always mattered most. It's what will always matter most. Regardless of how we describe it or talk about it, it is the core of what Jesus says we're supposed to be about. I don't know what our collective blind spots are. I'm sure you're sitting out there thinking, well, Jared, I know what your blind spots are. I get all that. 
I'm talking about our communal blind spots as a church. We need to pray for God to deliver us from the spirit of self-deception wherever it exists in this church family. And we need to ask for God to help us see clearly where we need to make changes so that people who don't yet know the presence of God in their lives can have that experience through us. We're going to sing together now. Uh, And as we do, our shepherds and their spouses will be in our church lobby. They're there to receive you, to pray over you, uh, to be community for you. And so if you came this morning with any concern at all that a Christian couple could help you with, please go to them in our lobby as together we stand.